prayer or the thought of prayer and our weakness in prayer often make it a discouragement to us. Not that prayer is itself the discouragement, but we bring our weakness to prayer. Uh, Our weakness discourages us, and then we uh, attach the two together, and we can't get them apart. So when we think about prayer, we become discouraged rather than saying, I'm greatly encouraged by prayer and discouraged by my weakness. We just think prayer's just discouraging. I'm not very good at it. I don't, I don't. I don't like to hear myself talk. I don't. I don't think I do a good job. He keeps give, keeps giving those bonus tips. I can't remember any of them. I fail every time. What's the point? Or even in private prayer, I try, but my mind wanders. I say these things wrongly. I, I, all of these failures we bring, we attach that to prayer, and prayer becomes discouraging. Well, what I want you to see this evening before we move into a time of prayer is that God does the exact opposite. God does not want us to be discouraged from prayer. God wants to encourage us with everything that he has to pray. And we see that here in this exchange between the bride and the groom, that is between the church and Christ. We, we see throughout this book his love for us and our love for him. And his love for us gives us an open invitation to come and to pray and to pray with eagerness. So that's what I want you to see. So look at chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, and we see in these two verses the chief desire of the saints. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. We see here the bride loves her groom. He is hers. She is his, and she wants him to be with her. She wants to be with him. This is the chief desire of of all of the saints. And we have this time frame that's given in verse 17. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, or some translations say until the day breaks. The the breath of the day and the breaking of the day were the same thing. They would talk about the, 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 the daybreak as the first breath of a new day. The sun coming up after the nighttime, and the shadows would uh, flee from the rising of the sun. So we picture the bride here is in the night of darkness, yet she's looking forward to the day of the Lord. when, When night is gone forever, eternal day enters in and dawns upon the saints. This would be the the church in every generation until Christ returns. And what is her chief desire? She says... Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. She desires his close presence. The the church wants Christ here now. We want Christ here with us now. She even uses this language that's saying essentially, sprint, get here as fast as you can. She says, he's mine, I'm his. I want nothing more than to be with him, near him, to have him here close by. And this is what I'm calling the chief desire of the saints. This is what we want. Christ is ours. We are his. Throughout the present darkness of this age, as we await the dawning of the eternal day, we want nothing more than for him to be here with us. Paul even refers to the saints as those who have loved his appearing. Ironically, I think in parallel with this, some of the last words we hear in Scripture 
The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Come, Lord Jesus. We see that the scripture closes with the church pleading for Christ to come. And at the end of this book, the Song of Solomon closes with the same cry. Make haste, my beloved. Be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Get here. This is what every saint desires. This is what the church desires, the chief desire of the saints. Now skip over to chapter 4. And here we see a comforting response from the Savior. Look at verse 6. The very same time frame, until the day breathes and the shadows flee. But also notice that he does not say, until then, yes, I will come to be with you. I'm, I'm coming as fast as I can. I'll be there in a second. He doesn't say that. He says, until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Pretty much any time in Scripture you see something, a reference to a mountain or a hill, you can think of a place of worship, a high place, an exalted place. Whenever you see myrrh and frankincense, these were spices that were used in the worship of the Old Covenant. Myrrh was a part of the anointing oil that was used to anoint all of the uh, utensils in worship. Frankincense was a part of the incense that was burned all the time in the tabernacle. The myrrh represents the spiritual consecration of the people of God, and the frankincense obviously represents the prayers and the praises of God's people going up before him. So we have this exalted place of consecrated worship, a place of prayer and praise for the people of God to gather and commune with God. Now, it's also interesting to point out that this is a singular place, the mountain, the hill. So we have the one place where the prayers and praises of God's people are ascending up to him. I think it's safe to say, and I'm not, this is not just me, this is a description of the church. Specifically, the gathered, praying, praising church. So the groom answers this request of the bride. She says, it's dark. I'm waiting. Get here as quick as you can. I want you here. The groom answers not by saying, yes, dear, I'll come now. Rather, he says, I will not come to you now, but here's where I can be found. Amidst my people where their prayers and their praises are coming up before the throne of grace. Amen. That's where we find our Lord. So if you want to be near the Amen. Savior, well, we'll find him where he said he'd be. In the midst of his gathered, praying, praising people. Now, that might not sound like very much of a comfort at first because prayer is discouraging to us. We're apprehensive to come before Christ, before God to pray, because we know our prayers are flawed, coming from flawed people. Prayer is usually where we recognize our flaws the most, especially corporate prayer, because our flaws come out and we think everybody's hearing my flaws. Prayer is probably the most humbling thing that we'll do in this life. And prayer, usually in our own estimation, is actually just embarrassing. So Christ says, here's where I can be found, where my people are gathered praying and praising. And we say, well, that doesn't sound very comforting to me because I'm not very good at praying and praising. But before we can even interject our reluctance and begin to name all of our faults, the Savior speaks again, just as if he knew what we were thinking in verse 7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. 
This is how Christ sees his church, his saints. He says to his people, you have nothing to be embarrassed about. You have nothing to hide from me. I don't see flaws. I only see beauty. Now, if that were not clear enough, or if it were not clear enough that we we do have an open invitation to come where Christ is amongst his praying, praising people to be near him, he continues this interjection in verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana and the, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions and the mountains of leopards. So here he gives an explicit invitation to the bride to come. Come with me. Come with me. He's telling her to come. And notice the invitation is that she would come from one place to be where he is. And here we have more mountains. The peak of Amana, the peak of Sinir and Hermon. These are places of great beauty and attraction, and yet we see they're also places of great danger. Dens of lions, mountains of leopards. These mountains represent the alluring and attractive places of the world or the, the attractive created things in the world. There, there's much to draw us into the world, and yet we have to remember it's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. The world and its lusts are deadly to us. Multiple mountains all over that are attracting and drawing us away, but the Savior says, come away from all of that to where I am. He calls us away from the world to draw near to him among his praying and praising people. And he says, there I'll meet you, but we're apprehensive still. We say the world, while dangerous, will accept me and all my apparent weaknesses. It still becomes attractive to us. You say, Lord, there are no flaws, but I certainly see my flaws, especially when I pray. Do I see all my flaws? But before, again, before we can utter these complaints, he continues his interjection again as if he knew what we were thinking, verses 9 through 11. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Here we hear Christ saying, not only will I accept you, He says, but I'm so captivated by one look of your eye, the least little glance of faith, the least little evidence of grace, I can't look away. Just one one little evidence, and I'm captivated, he says. Whereas we would often bemoan our weak love to Christ. We say our love is not strong, it's weak, I wish I loved him more. He cannot bemoan a weak love to us. He can't say I wish I loved him more because he loves us already to, to an infinite degree. He loves us with a love beyond our comprehension. And we see these references to the lips and the tongue. References to speech coming from the heart. Your lips drip nectar, honey, and milk. The very things that made the promised land a delight to the children of Israel. He says these things come out of you and out of your mouth. In the context, it would seem primarily the speech of spiritual prayer and praise. And so our Lord says, here's where I'll be found. I'll be found where my people are praying and praising. 
if you want me, then you come there and you pray and you praise and that's where I'll be found. But we say, well, my praying and my praising is so pitiful. And he says, listen, just start to pray. Just start praising. He says, just one glance with the eye of faith and I'm yours and I can't look away. So what greater motivation to prayer can we have than that Jesus Christ says, one, I can be found nowhere else besides the spiritual worship, the prayers and praises of my church, and number two, the prayers and praises that you bring are so captivating that I cannot look away. So we judge our praying by what our brothers think or our sisters think or what we even how we even estimate it how how often do we think what does what does Christ think about my praying because that's what matters let me close with a few quotations from Jeremiah Burroughs he says in coming to the mercy seat we are apt to draw near rather with a feeling that our lord permits it than with the impression that he is deeply anxious to receive us and meets us with delight He cannot welcome us with any stronger affection to heaven than that with which he now welcomes us to the throne of grace. Mm -hmm. To Jesus, no language, not even the highest praise of unfallen angels, is more delightful than the words of repentance, faith, prayer, and praise offered at the mercy seat by the contrite heart. Oh, what a welcome then does ever await us at the mercy seat.